This is Robert Capuccio. Welcome to Transformation Unplugged, where we challenge conventional thinking and explore authentic strategies and insights around personal transformation. Our commitment to you is to connect you with some of the world's leading experts in health, fitness, and behavior change, separating fact from fallacy. To be unplugged means deciding to be unrestrained by the beliefs, expectation, and assumption of others. To make the declaration that only you can determine for yourself what the best version of you looks like based on what you authentically want and value most. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this episode. know how else to introduce our guest today other than saying he is absolutely brilliant. I'm excited to introduce you to him because he has a very unique perspective compared to most other people, but the information and takeaways that you're going to get from this podcast are not only going to be compelling, they're going to be life-changing. Michelle Dalcourt has been a friend and business partner of mine for many, many years. A while back, we co-founded the organization PTA Global together. PTA Global today is considered to be one of the most widely respected and recognized personal training certifications anywhere in the world. Michelle Delcourt is a consultant to Nike, Apple, the Singapore government. He sits on the advisory board for Equinox. He is an adjunct professor at the University of Alberta in the realm of human movement science. And he also has invented one of the most popular and widely utilized fitness tools anywhere in the world. So just sit tight, hang in there, and I know you're going to love what he has to say. Thanks for listening. Hey, Michelle, thanks for joining us. Bobby, appreciate uh, the, the chat this morning. Not only are you working internationally within the realm of health coaching, which we'll, we'll get into exactly what we mean by that in a minute, but you've also had the opportunity to arguably work with some of the top organizations and top educators in this space. I, I think the first question that's most appropriate just to set the tone is when most people talk about transformation in any area of life, but we're talking about health, fitness, wellness, that domain specifically, the most common assumption is it's inside game. It requires discipline. It requires willpower. And while not a lot of people would argue with that, the empirical evidence kind of points in a different direction as an alternative. Talk to us a little bit about the role environment plays in behavior change. Yeah, well, I appreciate uh, that, Bobby. And, and I think that to a, to a large degree, if I'm being candid with myself, uh, you know, I don't know that we collectively, the collective we, has, has you know, found the, the solutions to that wholeheartedly. And, you know, I, we're learning a lot from behavior chain experts, and it's, it's been a really blessed journey for us. Uh, and I think as I engage in these conversations and I talk to more and more folks that, you know, are subject matter experts in the area, what I find is that it, it's not a binary uh, decision. It's not a binary viewpoint. It's not as if you either have willpower or not. Uh, I think that willpower and these things are important, but they're a finite game. That, that, that is a finite 
uh, you know, resource that we have. I can will myself to a certain point. Uh, and I've been through experiences. I think, you know, a lot of the listeners probably have as well. You reach a certain point where it starts to wear on you. And, you know, I think that although that's important to have in a strong mindset is really important to cultivate and, and to keep, uh, this idea of environment shaping behavior is very true at all levels of our, our of our of our being. So we we can look at it genetically and epigenetically. That you look at gene expression and uh, it expresses relative to an environment or not that it's exposed to. So genes themselves are not deterministic necessarily until they're triggered. Uh, and that trigger is typically an environment. And I think behaviorally, it's the same way. Uh, if we look at our forefathers and our foremothers, the way they interacted with their day uh, is very different, mainly because the environment back then was different. You know, we, we, we look in the health space mm-hmm. about, you know, trying to move more, uh, you know, the, the idea of getting to bed and sleep hygiene, uh, the, the, the inability for us uh, to navigate the desk and office life. Uh, these are current constructs uh, that in our past generations we were never exposed to. And if we grew up on a farm, chances are we moved intermittently throughout the day, which had health benefit because our biology was exposed to it for, you know, for thousands of years. So as we look at this whole idea of behavior change and as, as we look at health uh, through the lens of non-communicable diseases, right, and the prevention of, of health deterioration. It really is about not only achieving a mindset that is uh, promotive to health outcomes, but it's really about how we can take a look at environments and recognizing the power of environments and how to shape them beforehand. In other words, how to cultivate and engineer our environments so that we don't have to feel as though we have to choose uh, or provide willpower in order to get things done, which takes Mm -hmm. cognitive effort, right? So uh, that's what we're looking at right now. And I I like how you answer the first part of that question where, you know, it's yes and no. And everything, if we're honest, falls in the domain of it depends. Really good example of this is Baumister did a study, and it was a little bit cruel to half the participants, but they got over it where they took the college students. And they brought them in and they told them that what they were being tested on is the gustatory response to very specific textures in the food. So they broke the classes up into two groups. They said, okay, well, you guys over here, we selected radishes because radishes have a very distinct flavor and texture. And you guys over here, we selected piping hot chocolate chip cookies. And they said, now the radish group, you're not allowed to eat any chocolate chip cookies. And the the other group, they were like, okay, you're not allowed to eat any radishes, no arguments there, but you can have as many chocolate chip cookies as you want. I think at this point, group one started to hate the people in group two. And they, they let this continue for a while. And then they said, you know, since you guys are already here, would you be willing to help us with another study that's completely unrelated to this? And this is what they were actually looking to sort out. And they said, well, we have these anagrams, so these word puzzles. Would you guys mind working on this? And they found that the group that didn't have to execute any discipline or willpower that were allowed to eat cookies, as many as they wanted, 
Well, they stuck with these puzzles because it was the same puzzles and they're really hard. They stuck with them for about 19 minutes on average, mm-hmm. where the other group quit at about eight minutes. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about that, double the amount of time involved in what we would consider discipline and willpower, the effects compounded over time or over a lifetime, let's even say just a year, are extraordinary. But the key takeaway is that discipline is a function of how your prefrontal lobes uptake and utilize glucose for self-regulation. So if you if you were in that like radish group and you had a lot of meetings that day and you had a lot of stress, you know, you could be as disciplined as you want to be. But if your environment is you're meeting people out in a bakery for a cup of coffee, you're you're kind of setting yourself up for failure. I think that's kind of one of the key points that I heard you say, if I'm correct. Well, it comes back broad. I mean, obviously, there's a dopamine response and all these other things, chemistry-wise, that you know would you know would probably introduce a certain behavior that's more kind of engaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what it comes down to for me, as I talk to all these individuals and, and we are immersing ourselves in these environments is it really comes down to environments. Uh, if environments shape behaviors and uh, what's powerful about that is they shape behaviors across a wide, a wide swath of populations. Uh, and it is incredible, you know, how much influence they have on our day-to-day activities. And so my thinking, our thinking collectively is if we can actually go in and begin to manipulate these environments, do we need to necessarily uh, concentrate on all our behaviors? And I think, you know, in, in the tasks and the lifestyle and uh, the environments that broadly we put ourselves in, there's a lot of cognitive bandwidth that is being occupied uh, by trying to make, quote unquote, the right choice. Uh, there's a lot of anxiousness with that. There is a lot of deliberation mm-hmm. with that. There's a lot of emotion with that. And, and thus, you know, it, it starts to rob us of our ability to be in the moment and present. And if we let environments, to a certain degree, uh, take root of our behaviors because we're engineering the right environments for positive health outcomes, then it alleviates all of the the, the burden of choice, right? The burden of making the right or wrong decision. Uh, that's taken away and it frees our cognitive and it frees our emotion or frees our lives up to just live. Uh, and I know that that sounds overly simplistic and there's more complexity to that, but there is power to that thinking. Well, there's also a lot of practicality. Now, I want to unpack two things that you just said, but I'm going to jump ahead for a second and go in reverse order because Here's what I have noticed through the majority of my clients happens. I set a plan to do something and I'm doing okay. So let's say three, four days out of the week, I'm rocking. But there's one day where, I don't know, a piece of chocolate cake seems to take advantage of me. We've sure. all had that happen. Sure. And, and it's not the incident, but it's the interpretation of that incident and how I respond to it. That sets me back. Now, you've told the story. We both know someone in the nutrition space who's arguably one of the top experts in the world. And without naming him, obviously, 
you know, he's been out with other presenters and, you know, they always let him order the food first just to see what he's going to do. Right. Could you tell us about that and talk a little bit about what happens when you make, I don't want to say the wrong choice. I don't want to label that, but make an unplanned choice. What's the typical versus maybe a more constructive response? Well, it goes back to, you know, our expectations of what ought to be. And, you know, I, I don't know that we give, there's so much information out there that is binary. You know, we should be doing this. We should be doing that. Uh, and it's, it's very clear, uh, but it is uh, very, uh, I would say it, it, it lacks the idea of being human. Uh, we have emotions. Uh, we have undulations. Uh, we live our lives in a way that is not perfect. In fact, per being perfect is impossible. And yet we have these expectations on our behaviors because of what we are told, what we read, what our contemporaries even show us. I mean, look at Instagram and social media. Typically, an individual will illustrate the best parts of their day, right? What they do well. Uh, that's not always the case, but certainly it, it is in abundance. Uh, and so what we tend to see in our lives is what other people are doing well, that may not reflect their reality even. Uh, so these sound bites and, you know, our contemporaries are all showing us the ideal. And yet what we push forward is this, this saying, and we've used this saying with Singapore and others, but this idea of better beats perfect. And we've even hashtagged it, hashtag better beats perfect. And what we mean by that is it doesn't matter. Uh, in fact, it, it is, I think, in an unrealistic and unproductive way to move forward if perfection is uh, our, our true north. Because we'll never attain it, number one. And I think, number two, that's not the point. The point is to make small incremental changes that lead to habit and ritual that actually become our true north and become the cornerstone and the bedrock uh, of, our, of our way to navigate it. So that when we do make decisions that are not in keeping with best health outcomes, we can actually enjoy them. And so if I'm choosing the wrong food, for example, uh, but I say I'm willing to do this because the, the, the socialness of it and the environment and the way I feel right now, I'm going to make this poor, you know, uh, nutritional choice. But having done that, I'm going to enjoy every single bite to the limitation of the, mic the micro and macronutrients that I'm taking in. Let's say it's the wrong type. Uh, that'll be overcome to a certain degree by my absolute pleasure in every bite of enjoyment. And there's actually health benefit to that too, <laughs> right? So like what? Not, this I want to hear. You know, a catecholamine release, I mean, dopamine, all of these, this chemistry, if we are enjoying our food, let's say it's the wrong food. Let's say I'm eating a big chalk piece of chocolate cake. But in doing so, I have a pleasurable state of being there is a positive chemistry that ensues beyond, you know, the, the, let's say the, the, the lack of ideal micro and macronutrients, there is still some health benefit to it. And so the idea here is that better beats perfect. And what we ought to be doing is when we have those indulgences, uh, let's commit to them, right? The idea would be let's own them and let's commit and enjoy them. Knowing that we have these rituals and these habits and these foundations, let's say in this example, that we've built over time that serve as our bedrock so that that momentary fluctuation is part of the dance of life, 
right? So that we're making a poor choice. Great. It's part of the dance of life because most of the time I attain these rituals because I've set up my habits and I've set up my rituals and I've set up my, my environments to be more so health benefiting. And I think that's a better way to live than the, than I need to be doing everything right. And when I do something wrong, I harbor guilt and all these other emotions that are not in keeping with, um, you know, with sustainability. Well, my, yeah, that would be my guess that it's a more sustainable way to live. And, and basically what you're saying is, look, I sit down and I'm out for a social event and I wind up having a glass of wine and a piece of cake instead of saying, wow, I'm so horrible. I'm so disciplined. I've really blown it again. Right. Wow, this is fantastic. I'm really enjoying this. So there are right. biochemical benefits. Right. What about the opposite? What about the typical response? Does that and if so, how does it exacerbate the negative effects of the choice you're making in the first place? So ask that, ask that question again so I get it. So what about the way people typically respond? Because when people usually set a goal, and I know like you've trained all the clients I have, and they go out, let's say on a Thursday night, and they make that choice. And one of the key things that you said there was own that choice. So you have a locus of control, Bottom line is they wind up eating something that they did not intend to eat. Uh-huh. They usually come back the next day and tell you as their trainer how bad of a choice they made. Sometimes they stretch it to how bad of a person they are. Uh-huh. What's the biochemistry involved in that line of thinking? And does that make the choice even worse physiologically? Well, I mean, obviously that has impact physiologically and psychologically. Uh, and I think, you know, I would probably defer to the experts to speak to the, the particulars about it. What we know in a coaching realm is that uh, if that is the case and I cannot attain these goals and maintain them, uh, those behaviors uh, become reinforcing to the negative. So they become disruptive mm-hmm. and, and we call them disruptors. And so uh, to look at disruptors, what we would say is, uh, those are okay to identify and those are okay to work on and disruptors are okay to have because we all have them. And so the idea is not to radically overhaul and change all of them. The idea here is to make small changes, small changes, beat big changes every time and small changes beat perfect every time because uh, per- perfect is an unattainable thing. Uh, so we are setting ourselves up for an unsustained failure. Uh, or an unsustained and a failure road that we would navigate down. So we would say the smaller the change, the better, because it's easy to make. And if we can sustain and make small changes, uh, the cliche is, of course, they ladder up to big changes. But that's what we see in habit stacking for behavior change. We see a lot of success with individuals that can take easy, small changes and implement them into sustainable rituals uh, because again that serves as a bedrock and then we don't have to think about them and that ingrains into the person's identity this is who i am instead of this is the choice i'm making at the mm. time and so that's a lot I easier think that's a really people. important distinction it is and, and i think it's a lot easier because people are not faced with choice anymore right the choice is already made because it's inconsistent with who i am therefore i don't even have to make a choice i don't i, I just don't go there um but you know in in you know, in the navigation of, you know, the, like the analogy that you used about the weekend, having a glass of wine and a piece of chocolate cake, let me uh, extend that Bobby to say, let's say I had six glasses of wine and two pieces of chocolate cake, right? Whatever that is, it's like, okay, that is a momentary choice that I made. 
uh, if it's part of the generalized plan, which is I will give myself an opportunity to go out and be social and enjoy it, then uh, if that is back to the 80-20 rule or the 90-10 rule, uh, or it is part of my every second weekend indulgence uh, or whatever that timing is, then that is part of a sustainable plan. And that might be something that everybody has a choice to navigate and everybody chooses the pacing and the indulgence themselves. And I would think that if they chose premeditatively the indulgence ahead of time, uh, then they own it and they can really enjoy it. And it, yeah, so you know, they don't it, have that story that's reactive. It's very, it's very much part of the plan. So if I say, you know, I'm going to give myself an opportunity, you know, whatever, I plan it out. So if, if every second week I go out with my buddies and we have too many beers and too many uh, nachos, and, but that's part of the plan, uh, then it, it becomes something where it, I'm not reacting to it and I'm not writing off my entire weekend saying, well, you know, heck, Friday night was a, you know, was a, you know, complete the the you know debacle. Let me just write up. I guess my entire weekend's written off right now. And we've all kind of been there, haven't we? Where we said, well, you know, I guess I should write off the entire weekend. And that bad meal becomes a a bad weekend. And there's a there's a there's a big difference between uh, a bad meal and a bad weekend. And I wouldn't even kind of describe it as a bad meal. I would say it's part of the plan. And that's a very empowering place to be, right? So if it's six glasses of wine and two chocolate big chocolate pieces of cake, but it's part of the plan. That's an empowering mindset to have as opposed to now I feel guilty and I shouldn't have done that. And I didn't really enjoy it. And, and everything that's, that's harvard after the fact, uh, when we go through this. And so we've all experienced I, the I'll start have, over a Monday plan. Yeah. You got, we've all and been Monday there. turns into another. Yeah. And so Wednesday comes along and, and because we increase the magnitude of what this means, it doesn't mean anything, but we attach a meaning well, we get to Wednesday and then we start over Monday again and again and again. And then you perpetuate to, you know, your New Year's resolution, which less than 10% of people actually keep, probably because of a lot of things that you're talking about. Now, you mentioned a habit stack. I just want to rewind there a little bit. Just for clarity, what is habit stacking? And could you give us an example of how we could utilize habit stacking? Sure. So let's use the example that you just brought up, which is it's January. Uh, I've gone through a, a, a phase, let's call it Christmas right, and New Year's, uh, where I'm making you know, the wrong choice with a higher dose response and a higher frequency. So now I've turned up the volume on that. And let's say I have a certain mindset and a certain reaction uh, and a certain judgment to myself of you know, the indulgences that I partaked in over the, the holiday season. So then I come to January and I think, well, I need to overhaul things. Uh, I would anticipate and I would certainly um, challenge the idea of overhauling anything because it's not sustainable, which is why you know, most New Year's resolutions don't sustain themselves because they're making too much of a lift too quickly. That is akin to the example of, man, I should start running. My friends are running a marathon. Let me take my first month and every second day, I'm going to put, you know, a six-mile run in or a 10-mile run in because I need to get to 26 miles. That is an unsustainable going from zero to, you know, that amount of dosage uh, is not, you know, it's not sustainable. It's not a healthy way to do it. So what we would say in the habit stacking sense is come January, 
what we would do is we would look at environment prep, right? So we might say in the first week in January, don't do any changes yet. Set up your environment for change. And what I mean by that is, you know, maybe clear out a drawer in your dresser and put all athletic clothing in there. Uh, maybe, you know, buy some new shoes or swimwear, you know, whatever, make, make playlists on your, on your, uh, you know, your music, uh, your, you know, your music lists, your music library, so that when you do go for a love run or you go partake in exercise, you have a playlist. And now let's say that playlist is 20 minutes. And let's say over the first week, you're making three of those and you've got all your favorite songs in three 20 minute playlists. And then you're setting up your environment. So you're, you're, you know, you're basically uh, devoting, uh, you know, a drawer to it. You made all your music selections. You got a new pair of shoes. Bobby, if you did that over the first week, you didn't make any active move towards more physical activity, but you set your environment up. Mm -hmm. And by taking action towards the planning, you're setting your framework up and the excitement up and the anticipation up and even your efficacy up towards, I can do this because it's small changes. Like who doesn't like yeah, you're proving you know, it incrementally. Right. And who doesn't like putting together a playlist? It's easy. I would, I would submit that it's much easier for folks to put a playlist together than to go out and walk <laughs> because it's pleasurable. And what you're doing is you're setting up the environment for the exercise. And what we tend to find in this experience is that people actually want to do it quickly of their, more quickly of their own volition. So now they're actually saying, I know I'm going to wait till week two to start my habit of exercise, but I've put all these playlists together. I got my new shoes. I'm just going to go out for a, you know, one right away because I can't wait. That's a pretty good anticipation. Versus you got it. Dread. Yeah. You got it. And that's a pretty good place to be from a mindset perspective. So just to illustrate this, so week one, we'd say, Hey, Bobby, set up your environment. Make all the, you know, the, the prep work, the leg work to set up your environment. Uh, week two is go, go ahead and actively now engage in your habit. So let's say it's, I want to walk 20 minutes. So you've got your drawer set up. You've got your playlist together. You got new shoes, right? That was your environment of week one. Now you're partaking, partaking week two in that 20 minute, let's say every second day or three times a week. Uh, exercise. So you go out and walk for 20 minutes. That would be your second week. Uh, your third week could be a challenge. And what we mean by that is not to change the habit. We want to keep the habit the same, but we want novelty around it. We want to change things around it so that it doesn't seem monotonous and boring. So what we do is the challenge could be, I'm going to go out and uh, either walk my dog or get a friend and see if we can't do a 20-minute walk together and see how many steps we can take together. And we can now quantify that and track it or write it down. So that social component is social reinforcement, it's social determinants. These are very good things as it relates to social support, uh, which is uh, you know, a natural function of wanting to do things uh, with a little bit more anticipation and you know, a, a little bit more enthusiasm rather than the word you used was dread. So that would be week three. Week four, we'd take the same habit again, and we would put a reward to it. So somehow we would memorialize, recognize, socialize uh, what we've done through a reward. And it doesn't have to be a purchase reward. It could be an acknowledgement reward. But somehow what we do is we put an acknowledgement around it, giving thanks. And by doing that, we cement our behavior uh, and then we reward and memorialize it uh, in our own mind's eye. Uh, in so order, it, yes, and it could be under, amongst our peers. Uh, it could be, but we memorialize it, and when we do, 
we serve and we honor the choice that we made and we reinforce that choice that we made. So in this four week example, we chose one habit and we lensed it four different ways through an environment change, through the habit itself, through challenge in that habit and the reward of that habit. And what we do with that is we say, okay, if we can do that for long enough, that habit becomes a ritual and we don't even have to think about it anymore. And then we stack another small habit on top of that previous one. And by doing that, those small incremental changes become our rituals and then ultimately become our identity. And once that happens, uh, we are steadfast and unwavering in terms of uh, these things to us are sacrosanct. In other words, uh, because of my identity, the habits and the rituals and the, 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 you know, the behaviors that I exhibit are in keeping with my identity because I've done it slowly, progressively, uh, and incrementally in a very steadfast way in order to shift my perception of, um, you know, of myself and then how I interact uh, with the world in keeping with my new identity or my emerging identity in terms of health, positive health outcomes. I think that's a critical element of behavior change is identity. One of the things that has worked with me with a lot of my clients is on a scale from one to 10, how confident is on past behaviors do you think you are in keeping this commitment? And anything less than an eight my response is always just reduce the size of the commitment and you reduce it and you reduce it down to the ridiculous until you get eight because you can build from there. You know, and you also talked about things that you already do. Something came up in the seminar not too long ago where this person was like, well, you know, I, I work, I've got a family and I go to university. So for me, I've got no time to exercise. Well, my first question is, well, define exercise. <laughs> you know, so for you, it might be going to a separate place or it might be taking time out of your day right. to use the gym in school. What's your definition? Well, how often do you miss going to university? It's like virtually never. So you have a clearly established habit to work off of because as long as I can rationalize in my mind and come up with a good enough story as to why I can't keep this commitment, I can break it. And we do that every day. But if you take something you already do consistently, well, that's kind of harder to rationalize away and break that commitment because you've already proved it. So what we did with this woman in the audience is we have to say, well, you know what? What would happen if you just started parking about a mile away from your school and just walk to school? And then you gotta walk back every day. Sure. So every day she got two miles in after about two weeks, this person actually evolved into a coaching client. You start to stack habits on top of that. Mm -hmm. Well, what's another thing you've been looking to try? So it's like, okay, before I go to school, you know what? I'm going to sit in the car and cause I can't do it in my house. Got the kids. I'm just going to meditate. So how long does it matter? So mm -hmm. five minutes of meditation. Now you're meditating and you're walking two miles. And then that turns into, you know what? I'm going to leave even earlier because I can do it. And I'm going to go to the gym for 20 minutes in my university. Right. And now you have what you call the ritual, which you know, I, I think you are your rituals because rituals evolve into habit patterns. What you do daily is who you basically become permanently unless something shifts that momentum. I think at the nexus of rituals, and I go back to this, which was your first point of this conversation, is environments. 
And I think that if we can set up our environments, Bobby, we use less calories. And I don't mean necessarily the physical calories. I mean the metaphorical calories in the sense that we don't have to fight ourselves with strong willpower because they just happen. If we, if we use this example, you know, if our car broke down and we had to navigate through public transportation and the bus stop was a mile away, that new environment would dictate a mile walk just by virtue of the, the environment. Now, that, that may not be a realistic example, but we all have examples where we can change the environment to change our behavior. I was just recently speaking at an event in Canada, and uh, you know, I challenged the participants to the notion that what happens if the easier choice was the healthier one? And I challenged them to think about that. Mm -hmm. And I think what was interesting is some delegates came up after and they challenged me on my challenge, which was good. They said, Michelle, listen, that that sounds good as a soundbite, but how realistic is that? Because if that were true, wouldn't we be healthier because we would always choose the easier one? And I say, on the surface, you're right. But let's navigate a couple of examples where you can challenge or at least you can control and engineer your environment so that it makes the easier choice the healthier one. And we use the idea of healthy eating. And a lot of us have faced this example where we go to the supermarket uh, and we're just, we've got the devil and the, and the angel on our shoulders. We're walking down the aisles and we stop at an unhealthy choice. And the angel is speaking to us in one ear and the devil is speaking to us in another ear. And we always, if, the strong, if there's a strong enough impulse that devil always wins out because we can always rationalize it to, uh, to ourselves. I deserve it today. Today was a bad day. Uh, you know, I, I, had, I had a fight with my boss, whatever. We, and then I'm going to grab that you know, bag of chips or those, you know, those desserts, whatever. We've all been there. And so in speaking to this example, I said, okay, let's look at an environment where we can change our environment so that that decision is we're not confronted with it. And it, it makes it a lot easier for my, us to navigate the choices in a supermarket. So this individual came up with two by themselves. They said, well, because I asked them, I said, what could you do environment-wise to make those choices easier? You know, you don't have to fight yourself in a supermarket. They said, well, you can make a shopping list so that you're not faced with kind of infinite choice. You've got now a, you know, a, a list to draw from and you don't have to deviate from it. That would be one. And then they said, can you eat before so you're satisfied so you don't have those hunger cravings that make you choose those wrong choices? And I said, you're two for two because both of those choices are environment change, which when you get to the mm -hmm. uh, supermarket, now your choices are easier, right? And I, it seems overly simplistic, but I don't want to discount the power of that simplicity because we can do that oh, in all facets of it. autonomy, though. What you, what you did that I particularly liked is rather than going, okay, here's two things that I, as the guru, am going to tell you to do a little bit differently. Right. I've had people self-select their own behaviors, sure. which I think is extremely powerful because it, it, it's easier to rationalize. You just don't get me. But if I come up with that, I'm a little bit more accountable to it. And yeah, I, I mean, I'm out in New York City right now, where we're from, me and my wife. Every time she comes out here, because my, my wife hates the gym environment, nothing changes except she feels better and always like, I'm losing weight out here. You know, I love this place. And the only thing that changes is we go from Los Angeles, and we're, behind, we're driving all day yeah. long, to you have to walk a lot. It's subways, it's running, it's up and down stairs. But it doesn't seem like work because there's a lot of sensory stimuli. It's actually sure. quite exciting. Sure. 
You're, you're exactly right. And, you know, that's where environment dictates behavior. And, uh, you know, I, I hate to be redundant on that point, but we see the power of it because I think it's a natural tenant of, of biology is that environment shapes behavior. And I'll even give you one more. So we talk about communicable and non-communicable diseases, right? So non-communicable diseases are diseases of behavior, right? So you think of metabolic disease, you think of cardiovascular uh, disease, you think about all these things that were afflicted in these current generations that we have that our past generations never experienced. It's because of our lifestyles have changed. We're, we're a lot more sedentary. Uh, our food is organized and sold and, and packaged and engineered in a different way. These are all environment uh, you know, changes. Uh, our world is very different. So we have these new disease states, but I would also argue that communic non-communicable diseases, Bobby, are communicable in the sense that behavior is group behavior. And as all of us behave, we all behave in that same way. So as we start to tilt the arc of our behavior, that tends to shift tribal behavior. And because of that viewpoint, Non-communicable diseases are communicable in the sense that behavior tends to be tribe-based. It, it tends to be group-based. And so it's an interesting way of looking at things. Uh, when we look at the behaviors uh, and how that ladders up to health outcomes. I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit because I, I, I think you're covering a lot of critical points. You had mentioned Singapore earlier. What do you mean by Singapore, briefly, just to give a little bit of context to what I'm about to ask you? Sure. So we're in the good position and the good fortune to be working with some large risk pools out there, uh, not in managed health care from a, from a treatment and cure and a reactionary state, uh, but more on the prevention side. So what we're looking at is, you know, how do we approach prevention health uh, from the framework of basically four domains. So physical activity, healthy eating, stress management, and sleep hygiene. So, you know, can we actually look at different ecosystems to allow individuals to improve their, their habits around these four domains in order to achieve better health outcomes? And so we've had the good fortune to work with some groups in, in, uh, in, in Singapore and uh, in North America as well, in terms of how to delay or offset malady through prevention habits and through health coaching. And so uh, it, it's given us two things. It's given us a lot of uh, exploration into these areas. And we have now rubbed shoulders with a lot of experts in the space uh, that we are leaning on and we have learned a lot from. So we feel very blessed because ultimately, Bobby, our goal is to make large scale substantive change for people uh, to have it uh, differently so that they can achieve better health outcomes. It's not an easy task, uh, but that is, you know, our true north and that's what we're passionate to, to want to do. No, it's not an easy task at all, I'd imagine. But what it gives you is data and statistical relevance. It's easy to say, well, you know, here's what I've done, and this has worked for me. And that, that's, and that is relevant. 
but it's not as profound as, okay, here's this population of a million people and here's what's worked. Given a group dynamic, I'm going to take you back to that, what you, what you talked about tribal behaviors related to the group or the reference point you're in. What have you seen as being one of the most powerful promoters versus one of the most powerful detractors in transformation in health and fitness? Well, I think one of the, I'll start with the detractors. I think it's our current life, right? And, and you know, our environments that we have laddered up to are not in keeping uh, with positive health outcomes. So we look at, you know, the disease states of developed worlds and we can largely ascribe them to environments that we have come up with that are very convenient, uh, but not necessarily to the betterment of our health. So we can start with indoor living, right? So, you know, six, seven, 10, 12 generations ago, we lived out uh, and connected to the outside world a lot more. So light, temperature, sound, um, humidity, sense, they all change from day to night, night to day. Uh, indoor living has largely removed ourselves. And we look at now, you know, the trouble with sleep and recovery in our world. And then we've laddered that up to cognitive decline uh, and cognitive impairment as disease states. And, you know, Alzheimer's and dementia are on the rise. And there are a multitude of factors. I don't want to overly simplify it. But one of these factors is our inability to have good sleep habits. And some of that is <coughs> due to the fact, excuse me, due to the fact that, you know, we are uh, kind of removed, separated from what nature does to put us to sleep. So that would be one example. The, the next one is the business of food. The business of food would be, if you and I were in the business of food, Bobby, we would make food that doesn't spoil. So we would litter it with sugar. We would litter it with uh, preservatives. We would litter it with salt so that it has a shelf life. That is awesome business and terrible health because even though we are a better business because our food can sustain on the shelf much more, when we feed ourselves with that food, uh, we, it doesn't translate to healthy um, nutrition. And so, you know, we tend to lose in the aggregate. And that's another kind of modern, that's a development in our world. Uh, artificial light. Light is a pollutant, just like air and, and particulate matter in the air and, and uh, just like noise. Those are all pollutants. And so light is a pollutant and it's certainly affecting our, our, our you know, biorhythms of uh, rest and wakefulness. And then our connected life, right? We, we are now connected more than ever, but I, I akin to it as kind of a shallow pool. It's broad and shallow as opposed to narrow and deep. So what we find ourselves doing is connecting with everybody, but we still feel isolated and alone because we, we have not, we've sacrificed deep connection for more broad and shallow connection. And so all of these things are our current world. And what it tends to do is these environments tend to lead us to certain behaviors. And if we can engineer our environments in a premeditative, thoughtful way, in a mindful way, we are bringing attention. So mindfulness is described as bringing attention towards intention. So if we're bringing attention towards our intention of developing certain aspects of our world and cultivating and engineering our environments, what we what we will then do is be empowered uh, to be able to regulate 
uh, our environments to a certain degree, not all of them, but some, and then our habits will naturally ensue because of those environments. And, uh, and we really feel strongly that that has a scalable quality. It has a ubiquitous quality to it. So what I would say is that, you know, through indoor living, through, you know, the, the, the business of food, through artificial light and through this kind of this connection of our current world, uh, these are the environments that have led us to these types of behaviors, our current types of behaviors. And then that has, if you look at the throughput, that has led us to current states of disease. Um, and so by taking a look at these environments, by engineering some of these envir environments, by making small steps, not big habit changes, but small habit changes, and by anchoring into the notion that better beats perfect, it is really a journey after that. And that if we have a human-to-human -human connection through that journey, that makes it even stronger uh, to be able to ladder up to a sustainable behavior change and one that ultimately starts to change or alter or inform and, uh, and enlighten our, our, our identity. And that would be much more health benefiting uh, than what we typically see come January with all the new year, new year's resolutions. So, you know, it, it would be interesting if instead of saying, I'm going to change everything January 1st, if maybe if it's one thing and that one thing enlisted social support, you know, like maybe I'm just going to go do this boot camp, or I'm just going to go ahead and do this group exercise class, or it could even be, I've seen it be as simple as, I'm going to call someone who lives a few hundred miles away from me and we're just going to discuss our progress and challenges and we're going to create our own long distance social support network. Really powerful, really valuable. Thank you, Michelle. It's great having you. Yeah, you bet. And uh, I think that's a powerful message to begin to end with rather because, you know, the perceived support of others has been shown to have the most powerful influence on health. So I think it's That's what you just said. Takeaway. Is, yeah. It's overlooked, but extremely valuable. Thanks, Michelle. All right. Appreciate it, Bobby. Thanks for listening to this episode of Transformation Unplugged. Our affiliate partner for this episode is Coached. That's C-O-A-C-H-D. If you download their app or go to their website and choose to work with one of their world-class coaches, they're offering all listeners of this podcast a 20% discount. All you got to do is use the code TRANSFORMATIONUNPLUGGED. See you on the next episode.